This is the second of a two-episode recording of Pearl by an anonymous medieval poet, translated into modern English by Simon Armitage and read by Michael Elliott. It covers sections 11 through 20 of the poem. The text is from the Faber and Faber edition of 2016. Section 11. In God's domain, more and less have the same meaning, said that noble maiden, for every person is paid equally despite how much or little they deserve. The Almighty Master is no miser, however stern or restrained his dealings, his gifts surge like water from a stream, or rise from depths that never run dry. His abundance is boundless. To those believers who reach to him to be rescued from sin, no happiness would he ever withhold, for the grace of God is great enough for all. Yet now, you argue, in order to outwit me, saying I was paid my penny improperly, and claim that because I came so late I remain unworthy of such a reward. But have you in your life ever heard of someone so wholly devout and wholly devotion that he did not forfeit by some fault or other the reward of radiant heaven he had sought? And the older they grow, the more often they risk choosing wrong before right, so must seek mercy many times over, and pray that God has grace enough for all. But the innocent have enough inherent grace. After being born, they are duly baptized, immersed at once in holy water, and so they venture into the vineyard. Soon their day, edged with darkness, descends at dusk into deathly night-time, and the Lord allots his labors their allowance who were blameless during their brief lives. They did as he asked within those acres, so rightly he rewards them, all with their wage. Yes, pays them first, and pays them in full, for the grace of God is great enough for all. Enough is known to acknowledge that man was first formed for a life of perfection. But our forefather, Adam, forfeited bliss by tasting the forbidden fruit on his tongue. By eating that apple, he damned us all to die in sorrow, deprived of delight. Then fall to the flaming fires of hell and be punished without reprieve or escape. But salvation was ours eventually, when crimson blood and clear water dripped on the cruel cross of Christ, because God's grace was great enough. From that broad wound, enough bright blood and holy water welled earthward. The blood released us from relentless hell and saved us all from a second death. The water that streamed, it is worth saying, spilled on the spear which spiked our Lord to banish by baptism those deadly sins of Adam's making in which we were mired. In a blessed hour he restored our bliss. And now there is nothing in this wide world that stands between us and ecstasy. For the grace of God is great enough. Section 12. The man will be granted grace enough 
who repeats his sin but solemnly repents and seeks out grace with sincere sorrow and suffers the pains of true penitence. But judgment and justice go hand in hand and will always save the guiltless soul. God's law would never allow those pure in thought and deed to be punished. The guilty must plead for his forgiveness, and through remorse be offered mercy. But those who resist all slyness and deceit are assured salvation through innocence. So what I say is right by reason. God will spare two sorts of people. The righteous man shall see his face and the innocent man shall be called forward. As the Psalter inquires with the following question, Lord, who shall scale your steep summit and come to rest in your holy realm? And the psalmist is prompt to reply to it himself. He who did no harm with his hands, who harbored no evil or hurt in his heart, shall find in heaven a firm footing. By right, the innocent are always safe. And the righteous, too, will find a route to the shining citadel, that much is certain. Those who lived without folly or lie, who were never false with friends or neighbors. Of the righteous man, Solomon reminds us how wisdom obtained honor for him by leading him along the narrow lane with heaven's kingdom in sight up ahead, as if to imply that lovely isle is yours to gain if you keep going because undeniably and without a doubt the innocent reach there as of right. Although, with regard to righteous men, read what David wrote in the Psalter. Lord, never summon your servant to judgment, for not one person is worthy in your presence. So, when you come before the court where cases are called and heard in due course, even the righteous might be refused for reasons recorded in those writings. But may Christ, who died on the cruel cross, horribly pierced through his pale hands, set you free in that final trial, if not by right, then by innocence. You who righteously read the Bible, remember this parable and heed its instruction. When Jesus passed among his people, they brought their babes and bairns towards him and humbly begged him to hold their offspring, hoping for a touch of his happiness and health. His disciples lectured them, leave him alone, and warned the crowd with discouraging words. Then Jesus spoke, saying to them gently, allow the little ones to come to their Lord. Heaven is always ready to receive them. So, rightly, the innocent shall always be saved. Section 13 Christ then called his dutiful disciples to remind them none had the right to his realm unless they approached with the purity of children. Otherwise, they had no hope of entering. Faultless, honest, and undefiled, not stained or shamed by corrupting sin, when the innocent knock and ask to, ask to come in, the bolts of the gate shall be drawn back. And unending kinds of joy in that kingdom the jeweler pursues through his precious stone, selling linen and wool, his life's work, to purchase an incomparable pearl." 
This costly, incomparable pearl for which the jeweler will sell his stock is like the luminous empire of heaven, so says the lord of land and seas. Flawless, fathomless, clean and clear, a sublime circle, an endless sphere that belongs jointly to the just. It sits burnished and bright at the centre of my breast. My lord the Lamb, who shed his blood, set it there as a symbol of peace. I suggest you forsake this insane world and purchase your incomparable pearl. O oh, pure and incomparable pearl, bearer of the priceless pearl, I said, whoever fashioned your fine features and wove what you wear is a miracle worker. Your beauty was never derived from nature. Pygmalion failed to paint such a face, and not for all his letters and lectures could Aristotle tell of your attributes. Your pallor and complexion surpasses the lily from every angle. You are angel-like. Exquisite being, describe the position you command as an incomparable pearl. My peerless, incomparable lamb, she declared, my dearest destiny and lord, he beckoned me to become his bride, a match that many might find unfitting. When I departed your dismal world, he brought me towards his blessedness. Come to me now, my beloved, he called. There is no blame or blemish in your being. He bestowed both strength and beauty on me, washed and cleansed my clothes in his blood, then crowned me a pure and virgin queen and cast me in incomparable pearls. Bright and incomparable bride, who enjoys such royal rank, I replied, what kind of lord or king is that lamb to want to wed you as his wife? You scrambled and clambered and scaled the heights to sit at his side and be called his queen. Many beautiful women have slogged and slaved and suffered strife in the name of our Saviour. Yet you brushed all rival brides aside and chased away challengers to that marriage. You alone had the stamina and strength, impressive and incomparable pearl. Section 14. That incomparable pearl then spoke. I am unblemished and without blame, honours I hold with my head held high, but incomparable I never implied. The brides who live with our Lord in bliss are a hundred and forty-four thousand strong, as is written in the book of Revelation. St. John saw them gathered together on the hill of Sion, that sacred knoll. And in the apostles' dream they were dressed for their wedding ceremony there on that summit, in the city of New Jerusalem. Telling the tale of Jerusalem sheds light on what our Lord is like. My Lamb, my blessed and beloved one, my joy, my bliss, my precious jewel. The compassionate prophet Isaiah in his sermon was moved to speak of his mild manner. That glorious guiltless man was killed, nailed to a cross with no crime to his name. He was led to the slaughter like a sheep, and like the lamb in the shearer's hands, he suffered the blades of blame in silence when judged by the Jews in Jerusalem. 
In Jerusalem my love was slain, his flesh pierced by pitiless yobs. Always willing to shoulder our woes, he bore our crimes on his broad back. Brutal assaults and bitter blows left his beautiful features bloodied and bruised. For sinners he set his innocence aside, though he himself had never sinned. For us he was tortured, twisted and torn, then stretched and broken across a beam. Compliant and uncomplaining as a lamb, he laid down his life in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jordan, and Galilee were the places where John the Baptist preached, and his words agree with those of Isaiah. As Jesus walked to where John was standing, the prophet made the following remark, The Lamb of God is a steadfast stone, a solid rock to resist all wrong and bear the weight of the world's sins. Christ himself committed no crime, but owned the blame on our behalf. Who can account for his ancestry? He died for us in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, then, my beloved Lord was twice depicted as a lamb in the true chronicles of the two prophets because of his meek and mild demeanor. And a third example agrees thoroughly, as written clearly in Revelation. Around the throne where saints thronged, the Apostle John saw the Lord Jesus clearly opening the covers of a book with square leaves and seven seals. Each company, seeing that sight, bowed down, on earth, in hell, and Jerusalem. Section 15 That immaculate Lamb of Jerusalem was whiter than white, covered in wool so brilliantly bright no blot or stain could cling to the coat and discolor the fleece. So every soul untainted by sin is a worthy wife to Christ our Lord, and no matter how many he welcomes in, no tension or bitterness exists between us. In fact, let five times the number follow, the more the merrier, so bless me God. Among our exalted community, our love becomes more and never less. No one can lessen the blissful life of those who bear the pearl on their breast. We who are crowned with the flawless crest are incapable of feud or fight. And though our corpses decay in the clay and you cry with lament unremittingly, one hope above all stays alive in our hearts that our souls are saved by a single death. The Lamb releases us from despair. Guests at his table, we give our thanks, for he offers intense joy to us all, and no one's honor is ever made less. Nevertheless, if you think me a liar, recall what these verses from Revelation reveal. I saw, said St. John, on Sion's summit the Lamb of God in all his grandeur, with a host of a hundred thousand virgins and forty-four thousand more at his side, and the letters of the name of the Lamb were written across their foreheads, and his father's name too. Then out of the heavens I heard a shout like the roar of many rivers in flood, or thunder cannoning through black clouds. Such a sound, I believe and nothing less. 
As relentlessly as that cry rang out, reverberating with vibrant voices, within that chorus came newer notes, pleasant to hear, peaceful on the ear, like harpists strumming their stringed harps, the sound of that song was sweet and clear, a melody of mellifluous words, with harmonies that would melt the heart. There, in front of the throne of God, and the four obedient beasts at his feet, and the aldermen with austere faces, the singers were singing ceaselessly. Nevertheless, no singer ever known, no matter how able or practiced in their art, could perform a single refrain of that song, except the chosen ones of his choir. Distant from earth, they are all redeemed, since the first of the fruit to fall shall be God's. Clean like him in character and speech, they unite with their noble Lord at the last, for no falsehood or untrue tale ever tainted their tongues, whatever their troubles. Nothing could part heaven's spotless household from their flawless Lord or lessen their bond. Lady, never think any less of my thanks, I said, if I keep on questioning my pearl. I am not worthy of challenging the wisdom of a bride chosen for Christ's chamber. Nothing but a mix of dust and muck, and you, such a rare and regal rose, abiding here on this beautiful bank where life's fruitfulness never fades. But from you, sincerity itself... I seek an honest answer to what I ask. I may be a crude and uncultured man. Nevertheless, let my question stand. Section 16 So unless you object, beautiful lady, I call upon you most courteously as a person untouched by impurity and pray my appeal will prompt a reply. Have you no castle enclosed by walls, or manor house with meeting halls? You speak of Jerusalem's sovereign lands where David ruled with great dignity, but Jerusalem is in Judea and not to be found in these forests nearby. Faultless underneath heaven, you deserve a fitting palace equally flawless. For this company of flawless creatures you describe, a great throng, thousands strong, there must exist a magnificent city to house you all and hold you safe. How unjust if such splendid jewels slept rough in the world without a roof. Yet the length and breadth of this river bank I see no buildings anywhere about. You stroll here alone alongside this stream and gaze at the gracefully running waters, but where do you stay? If a citadel stands, let me follow you to that flawless place. That flawless figure then said to me, The city you speak of in the land of Judea is the same city the Lord sought out in which to suffer the sins of mankind. In other words, old Jerusalem where Christ atoned for Adam's crime. But new Jerusalem set to be set to ground by God. 
the apostle writes of in Revelation, there the lamb, unblemished by blackness, guided his fair and favorite people, and because that company is clean of heart, so the city is flawless and without fault. To speak without flaw of those two cities, both known by the name Jerusalem, a term which to you means little more than city of God or vision of peace. In one, our reconciliation was secured when the Lamb chose to suffer pain in that place. In the other, there is only infinite peace, a haven where happiness lasts forever, a heavenly home we speedily head for when our flesh and bones turn foul in the grave. There glory and bliss will grow for those who are residents of that flawless realm. Flawless girl, guileless and gentle, I said to that fresh and radiant flower, show me the way to that shining castle, lead me to the house you call your home. But she firmly refused. God forbids it. You cannot enter his holy estate. By the grace of the Lamb, I have gained permission for you to stand in sight of that city and glimpse its glory from beyond the gate. But you must not set one foot inside. You have no right to stride through its streets unless you are flawless and free of fault. Section 17 to find a view of that flawless place, walk upstream alongside the water to the valley head, till you come to a hill, and I will follow on this far bank. Then I wouldn't delay a moment longer, but went beneath leaves through dappled light till I saw that city perched on its summit, and stumbled towards that stunning sight some distance away beyond the brook, shining brighter than the sun's beams in its features, facets, size, and structure, just as St. John revealed in Revelation. Yes, just as the Apostle John described it, I saw for myself that exalted city, the new Jerusalem, luminously rich, as though descended from heaven's heights. Its buildings gleamed with pure gold, blazing and glinting like burnished glass. They stood on a base of precious stones formed of twelve well-fastened tiers, a firm and cleverly fashioned foundation, each stratum cut from a seamless gem, as in the writings of Revelation where John the Apostle depicts the Apocalypse. John had described those stones in his scriptures, so I knew their names, and also their nature. I judged the first of those jewels to be jasper, found at the very bottom of the base, gleaming green on the lowest layer. Sapphire occupied the second stage, and clear crystalline chalcedony shone pure and pale on the third plane. Emerald was fourth with its glaring green finish, and finely striated sardonyx the fifth, and ruby the sixth, exactly as stated by John the Apostle when depicting the Apocalypse. John also described the chrysolite, the stone which formed the seventh stage, the eighth 
was a brilliantly white barrel, a table of twin-toned topaz, the ninth, of course, of chrysoprase, the tenth, a noble and elegant jacinth, the eleventh, and twelfth, most trusted in times of trouble, was a plain of purple and indigo amethyst. The wall above that tiered base was jasper, glistening and glittering like glass, a vision I knew very well from the version in John the Apostle's apocalyptic scriptures. Then I saw still more of what John described. Those twelve tiers were broad and steep, with the city on top perfectly square, equal in every dimension, and exquisite. The golden streets sparkled like glass, and jasper glared as if glazed with egg white. Inside, those walls were studded and set with every possible precious stone, and every square side of that estate in every dimension measured twelve furlongs, in height and width and length the same size, just as John the Apostle had judged. Section 18 And I saw still more of what John had scripted, each of its aspects had three entrances, so twelve gates in total were visible. The portals were plated in expensive metals, and the doors adorned with a singular pearl, a perfect pearl that could never fade. Over every arch and carved characters were the names of the children of Israel were inscribed in order of age, that is to say, beginning with the firstborn, and so on and so forth. Such light illuminated the city streets that neither sun nor moon were needed. They needed neither sun nor moon since God himself was their guiding light and the Lamb their lantern. There was no doubt, through God's brilliance the city glowed and all was transparent so my gaze passed through wall and structure without obstruction till I saw with my eyes the high throne arrayed in awesome ornaments, as John the Apostle correctly recorded, with God taking his place upon it. And running directly out of that throne was a river more radiant than sun and moon. No sun or moon ever shone so sweetly as the plentiful water that poured through those precincts. It surged swiftly along every street without sediment or slime or foaming filth. No church or chapel had ever been built or temple constructed within the walls. God Almighty was their one minster, the sacrificial lamb their spiritual food. The gates were never bolted or barred, but open at every possible approach, though none may enter in search of sanctuary who bears any blemish beneath the moon. The moon cannot practice her powers in that place. She is pockmarked and pitted and impure in person, added to which it is never nighttime. How could the moon, casting her moonbeams from celestial circuits, hope to compete with the light that sheens off that stream's surface? The planets are pitifully poor in comparison, and the sun too dim by some distance. 
The riverbanks were bordered by bright trees, which bore on their boughs the twelve fruits of life. Twelve times a year those trees offer harvest, their riches returning monthly like the moon. No more amazement under the moon has a human heart ever had to endure than when I witnessed the walled city and marveled at its fabulous feats of form. I stood as still as a stunned quail, hypnotized by that holy vision, every nerve and sense in my body numbed and raptured by unrivaled radiance. And this I declare with a clear conviction. Any mortal man, having seen such a miracle, despite the craft and cures of his doctor, would go to his grave beneath the moon. Section 19 At the moment the moon began to climb, before the final setting of the sun, I became aware in a wonderful way of the sudden presence of a long procession. The streets of that famous and fabled city were all at once and without warning streaming with virgins, and the very clothing my dearest beloved was dressed in herself. They were similarly crowned in the same manner, arrayed in pearls and pure white robes, and at each girl's breast, fastened and fixed, a delightful pearl took pride of place. They went together in sheer delight through golden streets that gleamed like glass. A hundred thousand, I counted there, all of them dressed in identical clothes. It was hard to say which face was the happiest. Proudly leading the procession was the lamb with seven horns of glaring gold, his robes comprised of priceless pearls. Those thousands traveled towards the throne, and never once pushed, despite their numbers, but as mild as maidens going to mass, they moved along with delightful manners. The delirious delight his coming occasioned would indeed be difficult to describe in full. All the aldermen, upon his approach, prostrated themselves at the Lord's feet, Legions of angels, summoned as one, scattered their sweet-smelling incense about. Then glory and gladness resounded again, as praises were sung to the precious jewel by the virtues of heaven, whose joyful voices might pierce the earth and penetrate hell. Carried away by that stirring chorus, I delighted in declaring my love for the Lamb. My delight in gazing at the Lamb in his glory caused much amazement and wonder in my mind. He was perfect, unimpaired, and more worthy of praise than any tongue could ever tell of. The clothes he wore were wonderfully white, his looks graceful, his demeanor gracious. But an open wound, wide and weeping, could be seen by his heart where the skin was skewered and blood poured from his punctured side. Alas, I thought, who inflicted such injury? Any heart would sooner be scorched by sorrow than take delight from so dark a deed. No one doubted the lamb's delight. 
Although he was hurt by that heinous wound, he suffered in silence, displayed no pain. In all his glances, he was wonderfully glad. And the faces of all his glorious followers were alive with life, lit by love. Then looking, I saw there my little queen, who I thought was standing on the shore of this stream. Lord, how happy and at peace she appeared, so pure and content among her companions, and instantly I wanted to wade that water, longing for her, the delight of my life. Section 20 Delight deluged my eyes and ears till my mortal mind was dizzied by madness. Nothing mattered more than being near her. I wanted to join her over the water, and no one would halt me, hold me back, or stop me summoning every morsel of strength and swimming that stream. I would cross the current or die trying and drown in its depths. But suddenly that notion was snatched away. As the brook beckoned and I bounded forward, my bold intent was abruptly blocked. My plan was not to the prince's pleasing. My prince was displeased that I had approached that teeming flood in a state of frenzy. Rashly, I had rushed towards the river, but suddenly felt a restraining force. And just as I leaped from land to stream, my stunt startled me out of my dream. I woke in the same green garden, again with my head laid on the little hill where my priceless pearl had disappeared. Roused from sleep, all my sadness resumed, and sinking in sorrow, I said to myself, Let this be pleasing to my prince's pleasure. It derived me of pleasure and caused me pain to be cast so quickly from that fair country, exiled from all its exquisite sights. My heart labored with a heavy longing, and I cried out loud in mournful lament, Oh, Pearl, I said, so high in honor, to hear your voice in that hallowed vision meant more to me than anything on earth. If all that tripped from your tongue holds true, and you walk in whiteness wearing the crown, then I'll happily dwell in this dungeon, knowing what part you play in pleasing the prince. Had I put his pleasure before my own, and yearned only for what was yielded, and acted only with honest intent, and done as my perfect pearl had pleaded, then I might have lingered longer in his presence, and witnessed more of his mystery and wonder, but a fellow will always seek further fortune. I reached for more than was mine by right, and that glimpse of life in the land everlasting was shattered in a moment, and the gates slammed shut. Lord, they are mad who meddle with your laws or propose to spoil a prince's pleasure. To please the prince and join him in peace is the simple choice for his faithful flock. For day and night he has never been less than a god, a lord, and a loving friend. Here on this mound, this happened to me. At first I pined for my fallen pearl. 
then gave her up to go to her God with my blessing and also the blessing of Christ who the priests proved to us time after time, his body as bread, his blood as wine. May we live both as his lowly servants and beautiful pearls, pleasing to him. Amen. Amen.